All right, well, good morning, Pastor Hyden here, and I want to encourage you to open up your Bibles, if you have one, I hope you do, to Ruth chapter 1. Ruth chapter 1, we're going to pick it up where we last left off last week, Ruth chapter 1 in this amazing, poetic, biblical, Holy Spirit-filled love story in the Bible called Ruth. When you get there, say, I'm there. When you're ready, say, I'm ready. Last week, we looked at the first two scenes of chapter 1, found in verses 1 through 18. We talked about that in a sermon that I titled, Go Get That Bread. Go get that bread. Go get that bread. We talked about how Jesus is the bread of life and how when we leave him and his presence and what he's doing in our lives, it oftentimes is costly. And we oftentimes go for longer than we ever realized. But when we decide to come back, we go get that bread and we go back to Jesus and he meets us right where we're at and that's what's happening in this story. Verse one gives us some context. I just wanna set the stage. That's gonna help us get to our text for today. Verse one says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem, his name was Elimelech, right? He was in Judah together with his wife. Her name was Naomi. They had two sons. They went to live for a while in the country of Moab. So go ahead and highlight that phrase, for a while. It's just this reminder that they just thought that they were going for a little bit. And that little bit turned a lot longer. It actually turned into a whole decade. After 10 years, this 10-year run of just kind of being on the move, it, it, it did not end the way that they originally thought. Number one, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, didn't make it. He passed away during that 10-year time frame. And then their two sons, they had two boys that they took with them. They also passed away, leaving Naomi, this widow, by herself in an unknown land, a, a pagan foreign land, Moab, with her two Moabite daughters who married their sons. We learned last week that Naomi looks at her two daughter-in-laws, Orpah and Ruth, and she says, listen, it's been real, it's been fun, but it hasn't been real fun. I'm going to go back home. I'm going to go get that bread. There was a famine in the land. We left. We probably should have waited. We should have just trusted God and stayed, uh, but we left, and it did not go in our favor. I need to go back to where the Lord's called me. I'm going to go get that bread. You guys go back and take the easy way out. Go back home. Go to Moab. Figure things out with your family there. We're just going to go a separate way. Orpah says, you got it. I'm out. Gave her a kiss and was gone. But Ruth, oh man, in Ruth chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, this beautiful, poetic conversion. Ruth looks at her mother-in-law, Naomi, and says, you know what, Naomi? I'm not going to leave when things get hard. I'm going to trust you. And not only that, I'm going to put my faith in your God, the God of the Bible, the God of Israel. And I'm going to go where you go, and your people are going to become my people, and I'm going to walk this journey out. You show me where we're going. I'm going to go with you, my mother-in-law. And Ruth says, here's my yes. And Naomi says, all right then. Well, let's go ahead and do it. And that's where we pick it up in the story today. Ruth chapter 1, verse 19, all the way through 22. Ruth 19, verse 22. Let's go ahead and get started. The text says that the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? She said to them, 
Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Verse 21 tells us that I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned with Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country, Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Let's pray. Father, I pray in Jesus' name right now. There's much to learn in this text. Help us, God, open the eyes of our heart, open our minds. Holy Spirit, give us new vision from this sermon. Speak to us, reveal things to us, ultimately make us more like you and make the gospel more clear through this sermon. And God, I pray that people would love people better because of this sermon. Convict, challenge, and grow us through this word. And ultimately, may we fall more in love with Jesus through it. In your name, amen. Amen. So let's start with verse 19. Ruth 119, let's unpack some stuff from there. 119 says that the two of them, let me go ahead and highlight the word two. The two of them, the two of them, the dynamic duo, right? Naomi and daughter-in-law Ruth are on the way, right? They said, you know what? We're leaving Moab. There's nothing there for us. We're gonna go back home and they're, they're making their way together, right? They make their way to Bethlehem, which is the city of bread, the place where God said, I'm gonna meet you there. The place that God said, one day I'm gonna send a king, King David, and then a king of kings, King Jesus, right? And Jesus would come out of Bethlehem, this baby born of a virgin. It's prophesied in the book of Malachi. It's a beautiful prophecy that talks about Bethlehem. And right here, Naomi and Ruth are on the way. They're there. They're heading that direction, and they're on the way. When they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? Or I like how the NIV translation says, they asked this question, can this be Naomi? Now maybe you would ask, why that type of greeting? What was it about this situation that made the women in the town, right? Maybe they were catty, maybe they were aggressive, maybe they were curious, I'm not quite sure, but something about the women came up and said, can this be Naomi? Let me go ahead and give you some context again. Let's run it back real quick, a quick timeline of what has happened. Right? When Naomi left 10 years ago, there wasn't Facebook, there wasn't IG Instagram story, there wasn't Snapchat or TikTok or any of the different social devices, there wasn't email, there was this thing called memory. They just remembered Naomi. And their memory serves them well to remember a husband named Elimelech and two growing young men as sons. The, the text tells us that Elimelech, Elimelech was uh, from the tribe of Judah. That's a big deal, right? He was a native of Bethlehem, Judah. He was a man of wealth and, and influence. This was a big deal for that to be Naomi's husband. He was the leader, the provider. He ultimately was the one who led them out of Bethlehem, which was a bad deal, but she followed him on this journey, and now he's not there. Not only that, but her two sons were going to be the next in line and follow their dad, and no longer are they there. We don't know how they passed away. We just know that they're not there. They've passed away, and here is Naomi 
with her daughter-in-law, Ruth, and they look at her and say, I don't know if that's Naomi. Can that be her? Because I think what they're looking at is a 10-year later, Naomi who's broken, bitter, troubled, discouraged, and worn out. Not to mention the trip, the journey even to get to that place had to have been intense. Right? John MacArthur says it like this. He says, a trip from Moab, at least 60 to 75 miles, would have taken about 7 to 10 days. Having descended about 4,500 feet from Moab into the Jordan Valley, they then ascended 3,750 feet throughout the hills of Judea. Now be reminded of this. They didn't have Uber. Come on, right? They didn't have Lyft. They couldn't call a cab. Here's what they had. Feet, right? They had their feet. They may have had an animal, depending on what type of financial resources. They probably didn't have a lot of food. They probably didn't want to travel with much stuff. That would have slowed them down and made the process more difficult. So here is Naomi, who's tired and broken. She probably shows up on the scene. She's probably not smelling that great. She probably looks broken. Her, her hair has probably got some more grays in it, right? Not that I'm against gray hairs. I got a bunch coming in myself. Proverbs says it's wisdom. Come on, somebody, right? But that's how she looks. It kind of reminds me of this meme I recently saw on social media about church planting, and, and I love church planting stuff because I love church planting. I believe that's the way to reach the city and the world, plant new churches. But this one caught my attention. It has baby Yoda on it, and he looks so sweet and so ready to just Enjoy life, says, on launch Sunday, right? And then after one year, you got old, wise, gray, wrinkly Yoda, right? That one year did a lot. It's a roller coaster. This church planning journey is tough. But I want to just go ahead and lean in to this 10-year journey of Naomi. So she comes back, and I wonder as they walk up into the city that she's from, if the nostalgia starts to hit, the smell starts to come back. It was a small town, a small group community, right? Maybe she's seeing friends that she hasn't seen for all that time, and she thinks she's about to be greeted with this warm welcome. I'm going back home. I'm going to go get that bread, but she's met with a question. Can this be Naomi? We don't remember her like this. The response from Naomi is challenging. She says, Do not call me Naomi in verse 20. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Naomi, by definition, is the Hebrew word pleasant. Naomi stands for this pleasant spirit. The word pleasant, by definition, means to give a sense of happy satisfaction or enjoyment. They say, hey, happy, go lucky, Naomi, you're here, the life of the party, the one who brings the enjoyment. Naomi, wait, wait, wait. This don't look like Naomi. Can this be her? She says, don't call me pleasant anymore. Call me Mara, which Mara defined as, in the Hebrew, bitterness. She says, I don't feel pleasant. I don't look pleasant, and I'm not about to be pleasant to be around. I'm bitter. Call me Mara. I just want to remind you right there that in this text, names are powerful. I think names are powerful in our culture today, but in the biblical days, they were very powerful. They meant something. They carried an identity. 
you'll find God giving Adam the authority in the book of Genesis saying, hey, name the animals. That was a big deal, right? God names the stars and the planets. God is a namer. He changes people's names throughout the Bible. He gives people identity. He says, this is what you thought you were. This is who you really are, right? A name carried something. I was reading an article in Christianity Today. The title is, Why Names Are So Important in the Bible. The article says names are deeply important to human beings, a crucial way of understanding not just the world around us, but each other. A surname roots us in history and family tradition, while first names establish more particular identity and personality. You may become quite attached to your name, or you may wish you were called something else. In this case, Naomi says, man, I wish I was called something else. I I don't want to be called pleasant. I want to be called bitterness. Bitterness. And the Bible is not silent on the topic of bitterness. Warren Wearsby defines the, the phrase bitterness like this. He says, bitterness refers to a settled hostility that poisons the whole inner man. Wearsby says, man, it's bitterness that's going to rob you of joy. It's going to poison your insides, and it's going to jump on those who are around you as well. Here's what I would say. Get rid of bitterness before bitterness gets rid of you. And it harms those who are in your circle. Right? Some synonyms for the word bitter are anger, hurt, resentful, bad experience, a sense of unjust treatment. Therefore, you have this settled anger and hostility. It's how she felt, and she felt that toward God. This was what was going on in her emotions. And I just want to go ahead and say something. If you've ever felt that, just know that there's people in the Bible that can relate to you. I'm grateful that the stories in the Bible don't sugarcoat tough times. Naomi lost her husband and her sons, and now she's returning with her daughter-in-law from a different background and culture, and she's saying, I'm bitter. Maybe you can relate to this, but I just want to encourage you, don't, don't stay bitter. Get better. Get better. Ephesians 4.31 says, get rid of all bitterness, not just some bitterness. Don't just get rid of like 98%. Get rid of all of it. It's not going to help you when it's all said and done. It's going to hurt you. But she doesn't say that. She doesn't stop there. She says, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly. I, I think that it's powerful that Naomi says, the Almighty has dealt with me very bitterly. Right? Two things that I'm catching there that I just want to bring you into. Number one, man, doesn't bitterness usually lead to blaming? Right? Naomi says, the Almighty's dealt with me bitterly. She basically says, the, the, the situations that, that have happened in my life, God did that. He, she actually calls him the Almighty. I love how, how, how Naomi, she doesn't pivot away from God and denounce her faith. In fact, she leans into God and says, you're the El Shaddai. A, a name for God is Almighty God. I'm grateful that, that Naomi, she doesn't run from God. She actually runs to God and says, God, you've made me bitter. And now, I don't know that she's right with that claim. She's allowing her circumstances to dictate how she feels. But I, I'm grateful that I think she's in the right direction. She's not leaving. She's talking. And she's naming God the Almighty. Can I just give you the first point of our sermon today? The first point is this. When you feel like you've lost all your strength, 
God Almighty has more. El Shaddai, God Almighty has more. Friend, friend, you may feel bitter, broken, defeated, hurt, wounded, and tempted to blame everyone else, including God, for the way you feel. But remember this, God is still almighty. You, you may feel that very real tension and temptation to look at your situation and say, it's everybody else's fault. In fact, if you find yourself blaming other people often, check your heart to see if the reason is because you're bitter toward them. If you have hurt or you see somebody or you hear somebody or you think about somebody and your instant, your, 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 your first thought is blame, it's probably because the root is bitter, right? Because bitter roots produce bitter fruits. But if you can change out the bitterness for the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, you see differently. See, Naomi's not there. She's not able to see differently that God Almighty always has a plan and his plan is always good. Right? She's not reminding herself of Romans 8.28, which reminds us that all things are working together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. She's not there yet, but at least she's naming God as the Almighty, and when you feel like you've lost all strength, God Almighty has more. He sees Naomi, and there's more to come. He says, I got more strength for you. I just want you to, to hold on. I think that she's on the right track, right? Because she's left her Moab. She's on her way back to Bethlehem. She's referring to God as Almighty. She, she still has the bad attitude, but it's coming back. She's on the right track. She's repenting, returning. She's heading in the right direction. But then she says this statement. I think that it's a, it's a telling statement that shows you still into the brokenness that's deep in her heart. She says, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. I went away full, she says. I went away and I had money. I had status. I had a husband. I had offspring. I went away full, but now I've, I've come back empty. I've come back with nothing. I've come back broken. And that's often what sin does. It overpromises and underdelivers and sends you back. But friend, come back to a God who's almighty. Now, now another, another side of this, can I just give you a different vantage point, a different lens that I'm leaning in and I'm looking at this story from? Is I'm looking and I'm thinking, what about Ruth? Like, how can you say you went away full and came back empty, but you got somebody with you? If I'm Ruth right now, I'm saying, hmm, well, dang, you must not even see me. I must be nothing, right? I, I, I'm appalled, right? Not only that, but even the women in the town don't even address Ruth, right? They don't say, Naomi, who's this young lady you brought with us? Who's your friend? I want to meet her. They don't even see her. They don't even acknowledge her. When Ruth has been there this whole time, imagine the pain that Ruth felt, right? Ruth just gave Naomi this crazy commitment. Where you go, that's where I'm gonna go. Where you sleep, that's where I'm, where you, where you die, that's where I'm gonna be buried. Your people, my, your God will be my, you would think that Naomi would be like, here's my people. 
Let's do this together. She doesn't even introduce Ruth and they don't even see her. In fact, the insult is she came back empty. If I'm Ruth right now, I'm probably feeling some type of way. I'm feeling like, am I even valued? Does anybody even care about me? Have I been completely overlooked? I've been loyal. I've been with you this whole time. I came back, and yet you call yourself empty. Now, there may be a few reasons as to why this was the case. Let me give you some context into Ruth's life. Ruth is from Moab. Ruth is a brown-skinned Arab woman. Ruth was probably wearing some type of burqa or turban-like garment, which would have been according to her custom. Right? Ruth is from an area called Moab, which today would be located in ancient Palestine, east of the Dead Sea, which is now west central Jordan. That, that's where Ruth is from. Ruth has a different ethnicity, a different background, a different culture. She's now in a different place, and they don't even see her. They don't even acknowledge her. Can you imagine the feeling of discomfort? Here's what I want you to know, friends. I want, I want to make this clear because I'm convinced by it. When I read this story, this brown-skinned Moabite woman matters to God. She might not matter that much to Naomi yet. She definitely doesn't matter to the people of Bethlehem. They don't even ask about her. But friends, she matters to God. This brown-skinned Moabite woman has a book in the Bible named after her. She's a big deal. Oh, I want to jump into chapter two so bad. I want to get there, but I just, there's, there's more to come in this story. There's more to understand, and I think that we would do well to understand. Ruth matters to God. Come on, say this with me right now. Ready? Say, Ruth's life matters. Ruth's life matters. And you'd say, well, why? Why does her life matter? Well, here's why. In Genesis chapter two and chapter one, God is telling his people that he's creating. In the first chapter, Genesis 1 verse 27, it says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God creates male and female in his beautiful, perfect image. Ruth's life matters because she's created in the image of God. Regardless of facial features, regardless of skin color or complexion or tone, this woman matters to God. And therefore, she matters to us. Right? There's much to be learned here. It's, it's called the Imago Dei in the original language. The Imago Dei means image of God, that all humans are created in his image for his glory. Ruth matters to God. This has intrinsic value to her life, but I, have, I believe it has intrinsic implication on today. Let me just give you some example of some real-time application of why it matters that you see Ruth, why it matters that God sees Ruth, why it matters that God sees Naomi. If I were to title this message, I would just title it this, God sees you. God sees people. He sees Naomi and her bitterness. 
He sees Ruth and her devalue. And he sees people here today that are made in his image. I want to tell you something that's, that's really heavy on my heart today. And it's important that we catch this from the book of Ruth. There's a people group in our society and world today made up of black men, women, and children who are made in the image and likeness of God himself. And this beloved people group, let me tell you this, has for far too long been abused, mistreated, neglected, misjudged, unheard, unacknowledged, and devalued based upon the color of their skin and the cultural background that they represent. That that's the reality of the culture and the day that we're living in today. Much like Ruth in this verse, she was not heard, she was not acknowledged, she was not seen. That, that there is black brothers and sisters that are made in the image of God that can feel the same relationship to Ruth in this story. And that is not okay. And you might even say to me right now, whoa, 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 time out. That's not true. And, and, and me as a pastor would not be loving to you if I allowed you to stay in that erroneous mentality and ill-minded thinking that this doesn't have implication for today. If you'd allow me, I'd love to just give you a brief history and snapshot of black history. Hmm. It was not that long ago. In fact, in the 1860s, that black people were treated as slaves, as slaves, as pieces of property, treated less than human, deficient, inferior, until slavery was abolished in America, praise God, with the adoption of the 13th Amendment, abolishing slavery and involuntary servitude. Listen to me. From 1882 to 1968, 3,446 black men and women created in the image of God were lynched. The word lynched means to be killed in public without any fair right of trial. These lynchings happened in the United States of America. And even above this number, there were some white people who were also lynched in this time, many for helping black people during these days and for speaking out against injustice and lynching. In 1921, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, there were mobs of white residents strapped with guns and weapons and explosive items. Some even dropped explosive bombs from airplanes on a black community leaving over 800 critically injured and many people dead. It was in the 1950s in Montgomery, Alabama, where there was a bus boycott against racial segregation on the public transit system, led by courageous leaders such as Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Rosa Parks, you started to see systemic change happen in real time. In the 1960s, there were still white and colored people water fountains. There were white and colored people bathrooms. 
There were white and colored people movie theaters. There were white and colored people restaurants. It, it, it infected the, the sports dynamic and who got to play and where and different things like that. It, it, it changed society. This is not that long ago, friends. We would do well to lean in and listen. In, in 1963, the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama, was the target of racially motivated bombing killing four black women while in church, created in the image and likeness of God. They're glorifying God, worshiping God. Explosives go off, leaving four dead. In 1965, after debating the bill for more than a month, because it took that long, there was finally voting rights the act was signed into law prohibiting racial discrimination when it came to voting. That people from all types of different backgrounds and ethnicities and cultures were, were treated fairly when it came to what it took to be able to vote. What a breakthrough that happened not that long ago. This is real time for us in our nation under our watch. And let me go ahead and be clear here from this point forward there's been much suffering within the black community from unequal death penalty rulings as well as the deaths of many unarmed black men and women who have died at the hands of unjust police brutality. And this has been on display clearly. One, as of late, happened on May 25th, 2020, where a 46-year-old black man named George Floyd died in Minneapolis, Minnesota after a white police officer knelt on his neck unjustly for almost nine minutes while lying face down, non-resistant, handcuffed on the street as three other police officers in their uniforms stayed there and watched and even contributed as this man cried out, I can't breathe. He even called for his mama who's passed away. The brokenness there has left me as a Christian man startled. And I think that it's wise and important in our calling to speak up, to stand up, and address Ruth in this story and address our black brothers and sisters that are before us that, that, that are right in wanting to be treated equal, that are deserving of equality. Here's why. Because they're created in the image and likeness of God, just like me and you. And we must stop what we're doing and listen and lean in. Let me, give you, let me just give you three disclaimer or three diff different words that I think it's important for us to understand. When I say this, one, I want to be clear here. This is not a political issue. Friends, this is a biblical issue. The stuff I'm talking about today has nothing to do with politics as far as what's right and what's wrong. I do think that people should vote. I do think that people should vote based off of biblical conviction. And I think that that is a game changer. But what I'm talking about has everything to do with what God says when he says, this is the imago Dei at stake. This is the image of God at hand. 
And church, here's what I want you to know, that we're sinning if we're not being obedient to what Proverbs 31, 8 and 9 calls us to do. Let me read it to you. Proverbs 31 says, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Ensure justice for those who are being crushed. It's our calling. It's brothers and sisters in Christ to speak up for those who are being crushed. I've talked to many of my black brothers and sisters and says, and I've asked questions, how can I be of change? How can I help? And they said, could you use your voice to advocate because I'm tired? Would you be open to speaking for me because isn't that our calling? To speak up for those who have been treated with injustice, to speak up for those who have been crushed, to speak up for the poor and helpless and see that they get justice? That's the scriptures. Right? Martin Luther King said it best. He said it like this. Our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter. And I'm convinced that this subject matters to God because Ruth matters to God and because George Floyd matters to God because Ahmaud Arbery matters to God because you matter to God. And here's what's blowing my mind. I matter to God, right? This is a gospel issue because I'm not like Jesus. I'm not perfect in all of my ways. I'm not sinless, but he is. And yet he still comes down to me and he makes the relationship with me right by dying for me, by rising for me. We're all Ruth right here. We're all in this subject that, that Jesus says, I'm going I'm to initiate relationship. I'm leaving heaven. Jesus is from heaven. And yet he comes into our world to find people that are not like him and love them and see them. In Matthew chapter 9, it says, Jesus saw the people. And when he saw the people, he saw color. When he saw the people, he saw culture. When he saw the people, he saw that they were helpless and harassed and needed a shepherd. And Jesus says, I'm the shepherd of all culture. I'm the shepherd of all people. So we, as followers of the shepherd, are called to speak up and love on people who are afflicted. And in this case, it's our black brothers and sisters that we want to highlight, that we want to talk about, and that we want to put the spotlight on, and it is worthy of discussion. The second thing I would say just in this context is to be aware and to stay away from the pendulum swing mentality. The pendulum swing mentality is says, just because you said this, that means you demonize this. Like, for example... I just highlighted the, the police law enforcement brutality that has taken place on several occasions, specifically dealing with black brothers and sisters in unjust ways. The pendulum swing from that would be to think that I'm saying that all police officers are bad, and that is not what I'm saying. In fact, I have several people in law enforcement that are dear friends of mine that hate injustice the way that I'm talking about it, that are out on the streets risking their lives, serving the people and trying to make a difference in healthy ways. And we love our police officers. And right here in our city where one of our very own police officers was shot in the back of his head, that we as a church are praying for Officer Michelanos. We're lifting him and his family. We're praying for his recovery and we are brokenhearted that that was the response. That, that, that's not the right response because he's the Imago Dei too. And if we have a high view of God's image and likeness, that we have to love people. 
So beware of the pendulum swing mentality. I'm not saying that all, all cops are racist. Not at all. I, I'm not saying that all police officers are bad. Not at all. Here's what I am saying. Wherever there's injustice, we need to speak up. Wherever there's brutality, we need to speak up. Wherever there's anything that's not going along with the pattern of Jesus, we need to use our God-given voice to make a difference. Whether it's small or big, it's our calling. Let me give you the third point of disclaimer that I just want to say. Is make sure you take time to do your own research. I know that the phrase, black lives matter, comes with, uh, connotations or extra thoughts or, or maybe you're just not aware of the origins of the phrase, right? Black Lives Matter, as of late, from my understanding, has been hijacked by some to justify things like looting and rioting and harmful, aggressive behavior that has resulted in hurting people. And from my research and my understanding, that is not the original intent of Black Lives Matter. The original intent is to say, black lives matter. And you can't say that all lives matter until you first come into agreement that black lives are being hindered and treated unfairly and misjudged and injustice is happening in our black community. You can't say all lives matter until you acknowledge the first part. So it's worthy of doing your research. So when I say Black Lives Matter, I am not saying, don't pendulum swing me. I am not saying it's right to looting. It's good to harm people in protest. That is not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is don't miss what I am saying. Black Lives Matter. They, they, they really do. You know why? Because they matter to God. Because this brown-skinned woman named Ruth matters to God. That, that, that God sees her. Right, I'll give you the second point in the sermon. I just want to go ahead and make it clear. Hey, when, when you feel like no one else sees you, God still does. When you feel like nobody else even notices you or acknowledges that you're in the room, God still does. God still does. He does. And his plan for you is greater and bigger than you may imagine. And I want to love on my black brothers and sisters in this time and just remind them that all the injustice that, that has happened, that is continuing to happen, is not where the local church stands. That we serve a big God who's a multicultural God, who's a multi-generational God, who says himself that black lives matter because he created black lives and they're beautiful. In his image for his glory. So I hope you hear my heart this morning on what I am saying and what I'm not saying. I'm saying that black lives matter because in this current moment, that's the house that's on fire. If you go to a neighborhood and, and the neighborhood is all fine, but one house is on fire, it doesn't mean that all the other houses aren't valuable. It just means this one's on fire. For example, as a man with Jewish heritage, I have that in my background. I've spent time in Israel and I'm grateful for my Jewish heritage. I believe my faith was completed when I got saved by the Jewish Messiah, Jesus. Right? If you were to drop me, Haydn Ratner, into Auschwitz, Germany in the 40s, the 1940 through 1945 where the Holocaust was happening and millions of Jewish men and women created in the image and likeness of God were murdered because of their ethnicity, because of their cultural background, because of their belief. I, I hope that you and me would have a sign up that say Jews' lives matter. 
Because that's the moment right there. That's the injustice right there. That is not okay right there. And that's what we're saying here today. We're saying our black brothers and sisters' lives matter. And it's important that the church stand up and be able to use her voice to make a difference. To make a difference. Finally, before I close this sermon, I just want to lead us into the third and final point of this sermon. And that comes out of verse 22. Ruth chapter 1, verse 22 says it like this. So Naomi returned, and Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Right At the beginning of this barley harvest, Ruth says, hey, we're coming at the beginning. And what if this is the turnaround moment? What if she's going from famine spiritually to harvest spiritually? Not just physically, she's coming back to a heart of worship. She's coming back to the harvest. The the word I want to highlight is this word, return. That she says, I'm on my way back. I'm going to return. The third and final point of this sermon is this. When you decide to return to God, refreshment will return to you. The Bible promises that when you say, you know what, I'm going to turn to God, not from God. I'm going to turn to the Almighty God. Refreshment is going to follow along. It's all throughout the Old and the New Testament. Proverbs says it like this in chapter 3. It says, be not wise in your own eyes. Don't be wise. I've heard too many people over the past couple weeks say, listen, you don't know, Hayden. I'm wise. I'm saying, doesn't it say to not say that you're wise? Be not wise in your own eyes. Right? Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. I really believe people today need to be refreshed. Acts chapter 3 verse 19 says, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. God wants to refresh your life, but it's going to start with real repentance. Joel chapter 2 verse 13 says, Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. That our God says, if you return to me, I'm going to be slow to anger. I'm going to meet you there. I'm grateful that God meets Ruth and Naomi here. One more verse that I'd like to share, Zechariah 1.3. Therefore, tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Here's what's happening here. Ruth and Naomi They say we're going to return to God, and God says, you have no idea the miracles that are waiting for you. If you're watching this right now, and you sense, okay, I need to make a return. I need to go back to God and get it right. I need to acknowledge him as my Savior. I need to repent and turn from my sinful ways. I need to make a relationship right that's been wronged. I I need to listen better. I need to acknowledge better. I need to return And sometimes returning back to God looks like making relationships right. You can do that. One thing that I've been trying to practice as of late, just just maybe consider calling people that you've wronged and apologizing. Owning what you need to own. Not so quick jumping to what they need to own. Trust God with that. You could even call some of your black brothers and sisters and say, hey, I just want to learn from you. Can you just invite me? Can, can you share with me some stories so I can, 
I can grow. I can get better. I need to learn from you. I'm sorry I haven't done that more. That's a practice that could be an application out of this sermon. But I think the most important next step is if you're far from God, return back to him. I I, I so bad want to jump into chapter two because we're going to go there next week and you're going to see some very neat stuff happen. God has had a plan all along, but it doesn't happen unless they choose to return. David Platt says, in his sovereign design, God ordains sorrowful tragedy to set the stage for a surprising triumph. The surprising triumph is is on the way when you say, I'm going to return to God.